0: I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Carneson. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specializing in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. Today's episode features a very special guest, and we're going to talk about how to better manage difficult behaviors related to Alzheimer's and other dementias so that you can avoid or minimize the use of medications such as sedatives, tranquilizers, and antipsychotics, which are often inappropriately used to uh, manage difficult behaviors in people with Alzheimer's disease. And that's something that I talked about in episode 30, if you want to learn more about the specific medications and how they are used. And I'm delighted to have as my guest, Paula Spencer-Scott the author of the book, Surviving Alzheimer's, Practical Tips and Soul-Saving Wisdom for Caregivers. This book first came out in 2014, and she has just released a revised edition earlier this year. Paula is a journalist and a writer whose career has focused on addressing all kinds of family issues. I think in the early part of her career, she especially wrote about parenting. But she's now been writing about dementia and other age-related family challenges for over 10 years, in part because she's had to care for aging parents and in-laws with dementia. And Paula and I met just about 10 years ago when I first started collaborating with a website called caring.com. And at that time it was a new online destination for people concerned about aging parents. And she was my editor there. And we also co-wrote countless articles together for the site and we've kept in touch ever since. It was my great honor to contribute a bit when she wrote the first edition of Surviving Alzheimer's and also the second one. And I was really glad but not actually that surprised when her book started getting all these positive reviews on Amazon because Paula's not only become very knowledgeable about the kinds of challenges that families face when it comes to dementia and Alzheimer's, but she, uh, like the best writers and, and journalists, she has this knack for presenting information in a very clear and approachable way and in a way that's really practical and helps people deal with the daily challenges. So. I'm just delighted to have her on the podcast today to share her practical insights on interacting with someone who has dementia. I'm often telling people who ask me for help with uh, dementia behaviors that, well, you need to learn better ways to manage that and not just medications. And they say, how? And one of the ways how is to turn to something like Paula's book or Paula's recommendations. So today I've asked her to talk about this, why this, try this framework that she developed when writing her book. Paula, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for all that. I'm very happy to be here. Maybe we can start with you telling the audience a little bit more about your personal experience with dementia caregiving and how how it first came up in your own life.
1: Sure. Well, I first encountered dementia the way many people do. It was with my grandmother, who had a classic, a case of classic Alzheimer's. Um, Then overlapping with that, um, and I was sort of a bystander while that was going on, a little bit involved, uh, overlapping with that, my father had developed dementia and he uh, had it for a number of years and ended up outliving my mother. And we then discovered how much she had been covering for him and what she had been dealing with. And I shared his care with my siblings um, for several years. Um, during those years, I also had not one but two different mothers in law who were. Uh, grappling with Alzheimer's and another form of dementia and saw that up close and saw different families dealing with it and was part of of some of that. And then most recently though, my father-in-law who was in his 90s um, lived with us um, for several years and he proved to me the adage that you often hear about Alzheimer's, if you've seen one case of dementia, you've just seen one case of dementia because it manifests, uh, dementia can manifest in so many different ways and affect families in so many different ways and, and he had more of a frontotemporal type um, that featured a lot of um, hallucinations and delusions and some other behavior quirks um, more than say the classic memory loss being the, the main um, issue to deal with. So um, I saw a lot of different family aspects of, of dementia and, and dealt with it hands on in um, a number of different ways.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So when it came to your own father, like what kind of, uh, what kind of sort of behaviors were a challenge for your family to, to deal with? What did you have to first learn to work with?
1: Well, the repetition of both, um, language and behaviors was probably the first and biggest thing that we dealt with, with him, um, initially. Uh, so, you know, the classic, you know, repeating questions, repeating comments, um, but also repetitive behaviors. He, he would sort of be triggered to want to do certain things over and over again. Um, he eventually became um, a bit of a wandering risk because he liked, he always had been a walker and was out and about and doing things. So um, there was kind of a, a range of behaviors that, you uh, were to varying degrees uh, stressful <laughs> um, for everybody involved.
0: Yeah, people sometimes refer to these as crazy behaviors, but you know, I also think we can call them sort of behaviors that drive families crazy because uh, that seems to be a a common feature, and they're often part of what people find super difficult. You know, you sort of mentioned the repetition. Or, uh, you know, the the sort of confusion, hallucinations, or delusions, or sometimes getting agitated or, or ramped up. Uh, and then the, the doing socially inappropriate things, which often happens when the, the front part of your brain, which is supposed to be the kind of grown-up in your brain, um, when that uh, gets damaged, that sounds like that's what happened with your father-in-law.
1: Yes, yes. Um, Saying things, you know, so that he was a completely different person from the person that he, you know, once had been in terms of, he had no filter anymore of what he would say and what he would do. And those kinds of things are really hard for families to deal with. Um, The, the high stress end of the spectrum when someone is just behaving in such completely different ways, even, you know, somebody like me who had been dealing with a lot of family for a long time had been dealing with it professionally for a long time. I was at the end of my tether sometimes because um, it's just such a, it's a good word. I mean, it's a crazy making experience for families. Even when you know better, it's really hard.
0: right? Even when you've been sort of taught that this is, uh, that they're not doing it on purpose to aggravate you, it's just the nature of a dementia such as Alzheimer's disease. So, yeah, those challenging behaviors. So, so I mean, at this point, you've learned a lot, and I'm looking forward to you sharing with us what you've learned and the suggestions. But when this first came up for your family, how did you figure out what to, um, what to do about these uh, behaviors and how to manage them?
1: I figured it out slowly and steadily, and it is so, so hard. Um, it's really a, a process of... Uh, Trial and error and seeking information from people who know better and picking up insights that can turn around your understanding and extend your patience and actually work. But really, like any skill, you don't nobody knows how to do this starting out or or or. Shouldn't. I mean, because we just don't encounter this in our everyday life until we encounter dementia. So we were all at sea. There's such a learning curve, I think, that families have to climb to recognize what they're dealing with, what's going to work, what's effective, what's not going to work, because that list is just as long as the list of things that does work. Um, And so I think we, you know, kind of worked through it the way that many families do. And then I had been sort of writing and talking to people almost concurrently to when all this was going on. And um, it was a lot like, um, you're right, I used to um, write a lot about parenting. And I used to joke that it was, you write what you don't know, because if I... Didn't know something. I would be like, "Well, hello, Doctor Spock. He was alive at the time." And I'd say, "So let's I mean, need to write about you know toilet training." And so tell me, for example, say you have a, a boy who's four years old and his name is Henry and he doesn't know anything. <laughs> you know, he refuses to do it, which was you know my child. I was just trying to take advantage, take uh, examples from my life and um and and get the wisdom from other people to learn how to do it. So, it's a combination of a, of a of a lot of things. Yeah.
0: Well, I think it's interesting that you mentioned parenting and and Dr. Spock because um you know, like he was a medical doctor. And um and you know, um now small children and their problems aren't medical problems, but certainly Alzheimer's and other dementias are technically medical problems, but they create all these behavior problems that people turn to the doctor to solve, but they don't necessarily need a medical solution like a medication. They, you know, the solution is really to coach. I mean, when it comes to children, it's coaching the parent on the right way to support the kid. And when it comes to dementia caregivers, it's about coaching families on understanding the behavior and a better way to manage it. Because I find that people often turn to us like, isn't there a medication to fix this? And we're like, well, there are medications and none of them are FDA approved for these behaviors and they're really chemical restraints and you only want to use them as a last resort after you've tried all these behavior management techniques and so that's the ideal but i don't know that um that in the beginning people realize that they're going to have to learn a whole sort of skill set that way
1: right because i think you think of it initially as well there's this medical problem something's wrong with dad's brain he's not remembering things and that's where you turn first and And rightly so, but it only takes you so far in a in a condition that that just goes on and on and touches every part of that person's life and your life in turn.
0: Yeah, well, that's one of the many reasons I was so glad when you wrote the book, because um, even those of us well, first of all, I think if people ask the doctor about a difficult behavior, you know, like getting agitated or aggressive, many doctors, their first reflex will be to give out. A uh, a sedative or a tranquilizer or an antipsychotic, even though that's universally not recommended by experts in dementia. But even as doctors, if we tell people, well, you've got to manage it differently, we're usually not equipped to help people learn to do that. And so books like yours are just such a good resource to, um, to offer people to learn that. Now about your book. Lots of people have been through the experience that you had, many of them writers and journalists. And so there are quite a lot of books. That are written about dementia caregiving, and they're often kind of like a memoir, you know, the story of of somebody's life and their family with some useful information in there. But your book's actually quite different in its structure. You ended up sort of having a first section with lots of uh, interviews with different experts. Full disclosure, including me, <laughs> but also lots of other uh, experts on on coping with dementia. And then you sort of created a much more practical how-to section based on why this, try this. So what led you to write your book that way, given that that usually the
1: approach that people had after going through your experience was to write a memoir? Right. It was very deliberate um, because even though I had experienced a lot of dementia care um, and actually have written a lot of memoir-type things, um, I had, during this whole time— collected the wisdom from so many other people as well. And I really wrote the book because I wanted to contain this, all this wonderful knowledge in a really user-friendly way, because it was out there, but you might find, uh, you know, an article on this or a little information about that or somebody's snippet or insight. And I wanted to kind of weave them together, but do it in a way that would be um, helpful to people, so the idea was to look at Alzheimer's from the the multiple angles that um, that I had experienced myself, and I feel like a lot of people did. And so the front section of the book is these big picture ideas from selected experts. Um, yes, yourself included. I was happy to have you uh, provide the medical perspective, but people talking about their their individual perspectives. There's, there's social workers, there's doctors, um, there's um, people who work in, in dementia activities, um, but who could provide like a foundational overview about their perspective. So um, Lisa Gwyther, for example, who's a social worker. Oh, yeah. Uh, she started the very first Alzheimer's um, support groups in the country and was one of the co-founders of the Alzheimer's Association. You know, she has a deep perspective of an overview on what you should know about support. Um, Naomi File um, was a pioneer in the validation method, validating the, the emotion, the emotional connection and getting just that foundational idea out there. Um, after I wrote the book, and the first edition, Ann Basting, who talks a lot about in, enrichment and what the, her section is called um, Forget uh, What's Lost and Enrich What's Left, and she went on to win a MacArthur um, Genius um, Award. Uh, a couple of years after the book. But anyway, so they, the idea was that these people would provide sort of an, a foundational overview that everybody needs to consider. And then the book is divided into really two big sections, one that would be practical applications for all kinds of specific situations. I have dozens and dozens of really granular uh, situations from you know dislikes having a bath and you know is undressing in public and you know forgets what they ate or they're yeah telephoning I, I, I tried to over. count I think you had 55 but I, mean, I haven't counted but there might yeah be. yeah yeah that's that's <laughs> um, what I saw in the latest edition um but for each one looking at you know what what you can do and then the the third part because I feel like it's also really important and is not out there in a lot of places is all about caregiver stress. And the where places it comes from and what you can do about it. So emotional stressors like guilt and worry and practical stressors, like not having any privacy and then family stressors of all the different family dynamics that that we all encounter. Yeah,
0: well, I think it was a great approach. I certainly learned a lot, actually, from reading, you know, the perspectives of all these other experts, because you're right. There's all these sort of complementary angles that go into understanding And supporting a person with dementia so being a geriatrician I'm very focused on the medical angle and weaker in the other So, I I learned a lot from that and also from the specific suggestions for you know all those behaviors the 55 more or less (laughs) (laughs) so why don't you tell us more about the why this try this approach what exactly do you mean by that and how did you come up with that
1: Yeah, that's the framework that I use for dealing with all those specific behaviors. And I, um, I mean, I came up with that rubric because I wanted an easy way for people to be able to kind of remember, um, to capture an overall approach to dealing with all these behaviors. And what it basically means is that there's a a why. Why this? Why is this happening? There is always a why um, behind why somebody is doing even the most baffling and perplexing dementia behaviors, having something to do with what's going on in the environment at at the time or um, something that's tripping a certain kind of mood. Um, But the idea is to look for the why. And then in turn, there's always a number of different things that you can try once you have that insight in your mind that you can try different kinds of approaches based on that individual and that situation um, and that problem and those two things together kind of give you a, a format for dealing with any situation you know besides kind of just diving in, tearing your hair out and yelling, stop that, which is, which (laughs) rarely, (laughs) probably
0: probably will make things worse. Yeah. So you, so it's basically a kind of a problem solving framework that actually starts with a little bit of, you know, analysis of the problem, like thinking about why it might be happening. And then going from there to trying a variety of, uh, of things to, to address it more constructively. Well, I like that because not only does your book sort of, uh, You know, in a way, give people the fish. You know, the insight on what to do, but you're you're. It provides some guidance on how you can just get better at that whole process of uh, learning to understand your your relative with this condition. And it is a process. And it is a process. process. Also, the the behaviors they'll have tend to evolve over time. (laughs) Mm, mm -hmm, So you have mm -hmm. to, you know, be equipped to learn to troubleshoot. You know, something uh, something new that might emerge as uh, a new uh, normal come up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So since we didn't have an article on Better Health While Aging that specifically took people through this process of, of how to manage difficult dementia behaviors uh, without medication, all I had done so far was just tell people, here are the medications and don't use them unless you've tried these other things, <laughs> which uh, which I didn't, hadn't had a chance to flesh out in, in depth. I've recently invited you to, to write an article to contribute something to that because that's something the site needed. So we're publishing that article this week when the podcast comes out, and you've recently come up with a seven step framework to help people troubleshoot this. So why don't you talk about that a little bit, these like steps that, that can take people through?
1: Sure, it's basically taking that why this, try this um, approach and just breaking it down into a simple to follow platform that will work for uh, really any any situation. And it all hinges on this idea that you can't reason with the person. You have to look for the reasons why something's happening and then respond to it. So the seven keys that I've broken down, I'll just kind of list what they are first and then talk a little bit about each one. Yeah, sounds great. Um, Okay. Um, the, The steps are, you know, number one, reassure the person. And that's really important and I'll tell you why. Two, review the possible causes for what's going on. Three, remove any triggers. Four, redirect the person's attention or um, behavior. Five, restore yourself, another important and often overlooked step. Uh, Six, review what happened. And seven, reach out for more help. Great. So why don't you
0: take us through now um, these steps one at a time so we can better understand how how to apply them.
1: Sure. So let's imagine um, a really common situation. Um, your mother is, you know, suddenly shes it's been increasing. She's getting really agitated. She can't sit still. She's getting up from her chair and kind of, pacing around and seeming more upset and and showing just those general signs of being revved up and um, agitated. She may be, you know, muttering and saying things or she just can't sit still. She's pacing around the room. So the, and it's driving that obviously that drives you crazy. Um, and the first impulse is to say, mom, you know, stop it. But this is why that's probably not the best thing to do. So first, um, it's reassure. Uh, the person. The tendency is always to, for us to react in any situation when, you know, we're mad, we're frustrated, you know, we're embarrassed. Maybe we have company over and mom is suddenly, you know, doing this. Um, but it's important to remember that, the, that people with dementia are, are sensitive to others' emotions and they um, will mirror the emotions around them. So she may not be doing that in the moment. You're calm. She's agitated. But if you respond with agitation, she's only going to get more so. She's not going to calm down. She's not going to stop. Um, you always have to remember to kind of enter her reality. I used to stop and remind myself when I was dealing with my father-in-law and his delusions, I would just say, "Say the words. Like it's not him. It's the dementia. It's it's not him. It's the dementia because you need to enter their reality. Mm -hmm. So the first part of reassuring someone though, is collecting yourself. So, you know, do that. And then you also don't want to say you know calm down right that seems like a natural response but um, all it does is is feel dismissive to somebody it, right they can't calm down she's incapable of doing that you also can't really ask what's wrong because if you've tried it before you know I mean she doesn't know no, they she just can't don't know. really express that well they, they, yeah their whole um, ability to to you know communicate your feelings is kind of er- eroded um and so at any rate it's just not it's not very soothing yeah so you need to take an action that kind
0: of uh, is reassuring and creates some emotional connection is what it sounds like you're saying so uh you know either saying a little something that seems to validate what they're feeling um or some kind of gesture or something that i guess helps them just feel like you're there for them but it's true that often people's reaction is to uh, either try to reason with the person why they shouldn't be doing that or just tell them what to do or how to feel, neither of which is, uh, very constructive.
1: Right. Mom, sit down. Mom, stop that. Mom, enough already. Mom. Yeah. Um, and instead you can just play back their emotions as, even as you're assessing the situation, right? You haven't figured out what all is going on yet, but you can play back what they're feeling. Mm -hmm. You, you look upset. You know, you, you look like you need to go somewhere, or I, I know you're, you're bothered. Let me see how I can help you. Just something that's, reassuring Mm -hmm. um without being a directive it's just saying i'm here some people use a a a repetitive thing they for all kinds of situations it's like you know everything's all right everything's all right mama everything's all right not to worry um and and the person over time kind of starts to respond to that a little bit it's really important though while you're doing this to say it in a way that looks and sounds friendly and relaxed even when you are not feeling it mm-hmm. you're you know you you're just it. so yes as best you can you fake it till they make it um and nonverbal communications is really important with with people who have dementia and they're dealing with some kind of emotional feeling it, 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 we all shut down a little bit right so we're not processing words uh, as well anybody who's mad or upset. i know and um if you have uh those kinds of feelings going on you're not the words aren't coming through you're but body language we pick up on a lot more Mm -hmm. so you know tone nodding um not having your shoulders you know hunched up and not you know frowning while you're saying calm down Um, another thing that's kind of
0: relevant is actually that even people who are quite forgetful due to their alzheimer's or dementia people will forget what happens but studies have found that they retain the feeling you know, that they had for quite a while. So, so people, I think sometimes think, well, if I yell at them, they won't remember it. And it's true. They won't be able to tell somebody later necessarily that you yelled, but they found that people still seem stressed or upset for quite a while afterwards. Um, So not only are they, um, picking up on the emotions of their family members, but that actually lasts much longer than their memory of what you said or happened. And, and uh, I found that interesting when I, when I learned that, and I think it's not at all obvious to people, but it just reinforces the importance of uh, doing whatever it takes to bring a sort of positive, reassuring energy if uh, there's a difficult behavior, because um, if you respond with frustration, um, it'll make things worse, and that, that impact will last for longer than you think it might based on their memory.
1: Yes, that's a really important insight for whether they're upset or calm or anything that's going on.
0: Yeah. So, okay. So you start off by reassuring um, the person. And I think in your article, you have a couple of suggestions for sort of things people can do physically that are more helpful.
1: Uh, Right. Even, you know, touch is an important kind of body language and for some people, and it wouldn't work for everybody, but some people will respond to just a, a reassuring touch, you know, putting patting the hand or putting your arm around their shoulder. Um, I know, you know, you sound upset. Um,
0: yeah, you kind of have to know your person. But yes, if they appreciate, you know, a hug or holding the hand, then that's a good moment to do it, it sounds like. Right, Yeah. right. Okay, and then uh, what comes after that, after reassuring?
1: Well, then you're really trying to figure out well, what's going on? So let's review some of the, you know, possible causes for this, because as you pointed out earlier, upsetting behavior is not being done on purpose. They're not being, you know, trying to get your code or be mischievous about it. Or trying that, to get back at you, which Yeah. <laughs> sometimes people think. Yes. Yeah. They've lost that level of, of cognition and, um, or are, are struggling to maintain it. And that's not, um, very, very, very likely that is not what's what's going on mm-hmm. here, uh, almost never. Um, it's usually several different factors that, that might be going on. So I um, offer a few different general things that you can do as you're trying to kind of work through the causes. And one of them is t- to first just think about the timing. Is this something that's come on? over the last few hours that you've never seen before, or is this uh, something that keeps happening more frequently? So I know you talk a lot. You've taught me a lot about delirium. um, And um, that's something that if it's a fairly recent change, that's something that you might suspect. Is there something physical that's going on? Getting a
0: lot more confused than usual um, in a way that just seems
1: out of, out of the usual, uh, up and down of the person's behavior. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Um, But then you also want to ask yourself, or is there a pattern to when this problem seems to be happening? So, Maybe your mother, who's getting agitated, it's been happening more and more often. It's not a it's not a one time thing. Mom is and she seems to be getting worse, and wow, it, it seems to be happening um, an hour or so maybe after dinner. Um, that's a really common time for agitation and restless behaviors to pick up in the um, late afternoon, early evening, yeah. uh, known as sundowning. Or
0: does it happen after a lot of people have been over? I mean, kind of. If, you know, is there a pattern?
1: Yes. Um, it could happen in, in the morning when she's been sitting in her chair having a cup of tea and then suddenly she starts really bothering her and you know you realize that it's, it's the glare comes through the window um, and is causing a really annoying light or that space is just getting much too warm and she's kind of lost the ability to say, wow, I'm really warm here or Um, that light is bothering me, or all these people in the house, the kids have come home, the grandkids have come home, after school in the afternoon. Those are the kinds of things that can really trip behavior that you're not really thinking about it unless you go looking for it. Mm -hmm. So it's really useful to also make a mental sweep of, of what is new or what is different. You know, has mom started a new medication recently? Uh, Is there, you know, was there a new aid? Um, Is there somebody in the house who isn't usually there? Those kinds of things. And then um, another big bucket of possibilities um, is to think about um, any possible unmet needs that the person has.
0: Yeah, and here I want to say that, uh, you know, an older person is not a child. But uh, when I learned about this, you know, it has a lot of overlap with what you have to do as, as a parent, which is that, you know, when people have some kind of unmet need, hungry, tired, and we're going to, you know, go over a variety of them, they can start, uh, you know, losing it. Actually, we do that as adults, too. We're just more, usually more able to hold it together. Right. So, right. you know, that kind of same oh. approach of like what might be underneath this that is just. Right. Uh, the unmet needs. So yeah, what what kind of unmet needs should people consider?
1: Well, and not to belabor the analogy, but, you, you know, when an infant's crying, you know, moms go through that checklist, right? Is that the diaper? Is it time to be fed? Is that you, you just learn to, you know, is there a used to be, you know, is there a, the, the, the tab stuck, you know, to the skin in a funny way? So you just want to go through a similar kind of, of thought process. Um, so one, yes, is, is there some basic physical need, right? Are they just, are they hungry? I mean, people with dementia often forget to eat or they're distracted during meals and don't eat very much. Or maybe you were running errands all morning and, you know, missed the meal, um, is you know is there an incontinence product that needs to be changed? Is is something to do about the temperature or sleep? Those just basic physical comforts can be a, a trigger for a lot of different behaviors. Um, pain is a, a, a another big physical one. Mm-hmm. People with dementia are, you, uh, I'm sure I've talked about this. They're just notoriously bad at reporting pain. Um, I used to ask my dad, you know, are, are you are you okay? You know, he's. I, uh, you know, no, I'm fine. I'm strong like bull. He used to say, although he's you know, limping and rubbing his side and it, it turned out he had kidney cancer actually. Ooh. And, but never once complained about the, these pains inside. the side, you'd see him rubbing his side, you know, are you in pain? No, strong like bull. Yeah. Um, so that's a big area to just consider everything from, you know, their shoes to their, how their dentures are fitting, um, uh, pressure sores, those kinds of things. Um, other things that are physical causes, you know, constipation, mild dehydration, those often influence dementia behavior. Um, then, and you know, the environmental needs, the uh, overstimulation and understimulation are really big ones. So, overstimulation, there's just a lot of people around. They need downtime. There's just they're having a meltdown. That's often associated with um, agitation. Yeah. There's just because it really much-
0: overloads the brain to have a lot of stuff uh, going on and. And often their minds are already kind of working at maximum capacity, you know, under the best circumstances. So you add things on and it's just, you know, overload and meltdown.
1: Was even something like the, the dishwashers running in the background mm-hmm. and it's adding this low hum of noise and they're already, you know, feeling on edge or it's been all day of trying to hold it together and keep going. And now people are talking in the room, you're trying to follow the conversation and then you can't even hear the whole conversation. Right. And it's like the... the proverbial straw that just breaks the the camel's back
0: yeah and uh and then you mentioned uh under stimulation just being bored right it's important that even when people are older and their minds aren't what they were
1: before they can they can get bored well we have a tendency to want to make things easy for them which is a really well-intentioned uh idea that no mom we'll take care of it don't you don't have it you don't have to do a thing we'll we've got it. Uh, You're fine. Let me do that for you. Uh, But when people have been doing things their whole life, you kind of rob them of a, and they lose the ability to do things just because they can't keep up those same skills anymore. There's a real sense of frustration and and loss that um, feeds a lot of behaviors, things like Um, Wandering is a a big example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I think you
0: mentioned in your article that feeling unsafe or insecure might be another, uh, you know, potential
1: cause that just uh, if something raised their anxiety level. Right. That can be a new person, a change and you are feeling rushed from a day of routine of uh, errands, Um, you know, uh, uh, sight and uh, hearing problems can contribute to a a lot of those. Yeah, those make it worse my father-in-law was once spent an entire afternoon staring at the window because he was watching the nun. He wanted to see what the nun was going to do. And he called everybody he would call us in, come and look at the nun. And what's going on? I kept talking about the nun. The nun was a a golf bag uh. <laughs> that was in a trash can, uh-huh. uh, in the house next door, but it was right out his window. And it, 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 it a combination of both his, um, his visual impairment and his where his imagination was was going kind of led him to fixate on that. Yeah. So it can be a lot of different things uh, that are all worth looking at. So
0: you need to run through this mental list of, you know, like, you know, is there a pattern? Is it about a specific time, location, situation? You know, are there unmet needs? And and you're doing that in your head, but you also recommend a better way to ask the person some questions. They're not going to be able to tell you exactly what's going on. So uh, what are the sort of phrases that are better to use and which are the ones that are tend to be unhelpful and we should avoid?
1: Yeah, that's another great source of information is, is the person. But as you point out, you don't want to say why. They can't really articulate that. Um, why did you do that? Why are, why are you doing that? Why are you looking out the window? Um, those things are not helpful. Better would be using those other W words, you know, the, the who, what, when, where, you know, well, when, when did you notice her um, or um, somebody who's, uh, you know, where, where did she go? You know, Maybe I like that because
0: that's a great example of entering their reality, right? So instead of arguing, you know, like nobody's there, <laughs> Yeah. you know, asking some uh, questions to kind of show a little
1: interest, right? Yes. Yes. To a wanderer. You know, well, where, where do you need to go? Where do you need to go, dad, you know, to work? Oh, What will you do at work today? Oh, meetings. What are the meetings about today? I mean, you can just keep a conversation rolling. And what that does also is, is let the person feel understood. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you're on my side. So yet, important. Instead of being threatening, you're not adding to the threat. You're now subtracting it. It's back to it's another form of of reassuring, really. Mm-hmm. And people
0: just uh, they always need to feel understood. <laughs> that is for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you have like a little magic four words that works in most situations.
1: Yes, uh, I learned these four words from Tipa Snow, who is also one of the experts in my book and is a wonderful dementia um, educator. Yeah. Um, but it's just tell me about it, tell me about it, or tell me more about it. Um, it's respectful, it's kind of open-ended, and again, they feel heard, and you might pick up some useful information.
0: Yeah, yeah. I often tell people that, uh, you know, I ask because even if what they're saying isn't true or is completely wrong, just understanding what things look like from their perspective often can give us some ideas on how to, how to be more helpful. <laughs> yes, yes. Just more understanding is always good. All right, so so we've reassured, we've reviewed the potential causes and I think often uh, people won't be entirely sure but they'll come up with some some possibilities that seem more likely or that they could explore and then what's the next step?
1: Right, and then you want to remove any triggers that you've hit on that might be possible and again, you're right, you, you might not have the right thing, you might not have figured it all out but often there are uh, and there are several buckets of kinds of triggers that you can remove, and then that kind of nips the behavior. Yeah. So the the easiest one is is the visual trigger, and this really works a lot with with repetition. Often there's something that's setting the person off. Mm. Um, I, I there's a woman in who I mentioned in the book, I think, whose mother was obsessed about have the animals been fed that was her job to feed the pets has the animals been fed have the animals been fed well they realized because she was sitting in her chair and she could see the dog's dish right there and that would make her trigger to ask that question and every time her you know eyes looked in that direction she she thought that over and over again and so sometimes you can see a real easy visual trigger and um take care of that and, and make it stop. My, my dad was one of those who would wear the same clothes over and over again every day. He'd take his dirty clothes off. He'd put them in the chair by the side of his bed. First thing in the morning he would get up and he would put those same clothes back on again. And we had to learn that you had to get in there and spirit the clothes away and wash them. Uh, you could, or put different clothes there or, or wash them that night and put those same clothes out. But that he wasn't going to respond to any kind of logic that says, oh, dad, those are dirty. You should go and change. Or why did you pick those? Or it was just he saw those clothes on the chair. That was his habit trigger. He put them on again and he was dressed for the day. So you have to kind of work with that. We removed the trigger of dirty clothes Mm -hmm. that he would put on and um, instead just replaced it with clean clothes.
0: And you have to try things. I mean, I think this gets back at your why this, try this, right? That you don't know for sure what's going to work, but you just have to start... You know, thinking about why and then trying things that might be related and see if it works.
1: And so there are a lot of different kinds of triggers. A, a big one is um, misperception cues. So somebody sees uh, tree branches out the, out the window and they kind of move in a, in a funny way that, that they keep talking about robbers. And it, it's, it dawns on you, they're looking out the window, they're seeing robbers, you don't see any robbers, you just see tree branches, but then you realize that they are misperceiving those. And a solution there is, you know, you can, you can close the, the drapes and, and work with that perception. Um, or, you know, if there's a, a discomfort that they have, you know, feed them. Uh, just whatever the, the obvious cue that you can find and remove, that often will just kind of Get you out of that cycle of repeated behavior Mm
0: -hmm. yeah okay so remove the triggers if you can and then
1: um, after that i think you mentioned redirection so how does that work right redirection uh, again like um, removing triggers is something that there's a lot of different ways you can try there's no one right or wrong answer but the idea here is that then you want to redirect the behavior or the attention away from the stress and towards something calm so there's lots of different ways that you can do this. Um, it always works best once you've reassured the person, calmed them down, gotten uh, the the situation uh, a little less triggered by the, the problems. And then you can do a lot of different kinds of things. You know, one is just to introduce some kind of diversion without really going into the reason for it. Hey, I have an idea. Let's do this. Or, you know, mom, I need your help with... Mm-hmm. X. And, and often a really great thing for a redirection kind of activity is something that's a sensory so you know playing music for them, um, inviting them to, to garden with you if they're that kind of person, um, often like rocking in a rocking chair or helping to prepare food. All those sensory kinds of things are um, known to bring positive emotional associations. So not only are you moving them away from one activity, but you're moving them toward something that, that they, they tend to associate with happy things. Um, so that often works really well. Sometimes it's just changing the scenery, you know, a different chair, go to a different room, um, offer them a choice of different things, um, to do it, you know, the person best and the situation, but you can often, um, just shift the whole mood of things by, um, gently introducing something else.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, so redirecting and, you know, I think you bring up, uh, the sort of question of behavior and attention that it's often by sort of shifting what their attention is that you can kind of change the the behavior in a way, right? You sort of get them to focus on something else and then get them to start doing something else. But um, I think you bring up a good point that it tends to work less well if you start with that and that 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 initial process of reassuring them and validating how they were feeling is part of what makes it them more amenable, I think, to uh, to redirection, right?
1: Yes, that's absolutely why you need to start with the reassuring and sort of enter their reality mm-hmm. before you're trying to nudge them somewhere else in yours. Yeah,
0: yeah. Don't skip steps here. So once you've uh, redirected their behavior and attention and hopefully gotten that difficult behavior to to stop or, or become more
1: manageable, I think
0: you have as the fifth step, restore yourself. So tell us a little bit more
1: about that. Right. And, and it's important to know you won't always just stop it. But if you have managed to lessen the behavior or, or kind of move it a little in a calmer direction, that's progress. That's um, that's gold. Yeah. Small victories and deep breaths. Yes. And the deep breaths is important because this restore yourself is a really overlooked step, Mm -hmm. right? It's all about the person with dementia. And then we move on to the the next thing. We've gotten past that crisis and we're just moving on. But I think it's really important after an episode like that to give yourself a moment, collect yourself, give yourself some credit for having managed it right. um, And, and kind of decompress and it doesn't have to be an elaborate thing, but just in whatever way helps you kind of restore for a minute. Maybe it's just those few deep breaths. Maybe you, you know, text a friend and complain, oh, you know, she was doing it again. Um, maybe you, you know, my favorite, you go in the bathroom and you just do a silent scream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just get it out for a minute. But something that lets go of some of that, that stress and is an act of kindness toward yourself.
0: Yeah, it takes a lot of energy and focus and patience to go through those, you know, steps we talked about the initially like collecting yourself and reassuring the person thinking through what's happening, trying to redirect them and guide them towards different things. So I I, I think I like that you include that because I think people can sometimes underestimate just how taxing that was, and forget to give themselves uh, that little moment.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you don't have to spend a lot of time, but Mm -hmm. it's worth it just to to, you know, decompress a little bit. And then that puts you in a frame of mind when you can to be able to do the next step, which is review what happened. Mm-hmm. Because again, rather than just moving on, it's really useful um, to stop and think about um, the behavior itself because this can help you kind of nip further problems more, more quickly, get a handle on it or sometimes just prevent them all together. Um, oh, I know we're not going to put mom in that chair where the afternoon glare comes in and, and bother sir. Yeah. For example.
0: Yeah. And I guess that reviewing is something that you could do, you know, later in the day, you don't have to do it right after, you know, just do it at a time, I guess when you feel you have the, uh, the energy or what do you recommend?
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you want it to be top of mind. So you, it's great to do it sometime during that day because I think it's also helpful to have um, kind of an orderly log of incidents. Um, If things really are escalating and getting worse, you want to be able to see how often this is happening and when, Um, but no, you don't have to stop everything and do it right, right in that moment. Mm -hmm. But it is a a good idea to write it down because I am notorious for like, I didn't want to write things down And um, I think, oh, I'll remember that. Oh, that was such a crazy incident. I'll never forget that. But you do forget, and and you lose track of how is it increasing. You know, is it isn't always at this time of day, or you know, being able to to pin it against like different medications. Maybe they're taking just for some other health condition. Um, Just that kind of information is just helpful to have um, on paper.
0: Yeah, and a huge help to us as professionals when you know people come Mm -hmm. to us because, uh, yeah, most of the time people have not kept notes or kept a journal, and then you sort of ask, well, how often is it happening, and yeah, I think we think we'll remember, but everybody's busy and especially taking care of somebody with dementia is really tiring. Um, Mm -hmm. so, uh, so yeah, I'm a fan of people having a little journal to jot some things down and then, uh, step seven, reaching out for more help. So.
1: Right. That's, that's you partly. Um, there's, there's two things. I mean, first I'm always all about people looking for more ideas for those non-drug responses because, um, that is the last resort and it it sometimes is a place people need to go to, but you want to be sure you've kind of exhausted everything. And so it can be hard to think, well, am I, what else is out there? Am I doing this right? You can do trial and error, but it helps to get input from, from other sources. So I like to recommend to people, just, just look for more ideas. If you're having trouble with a particular kind of behavior, somebody out there has dealt with this before.
0: Oh yeah. Um, Actually, many people have dealt with it before. <laughs>
1: every yeah, person yeah, yeah. with
0: uh, alzheimer's or dementia is an individual but at the same time we see the same a lot of the same challenges sort of cropping up often
1: exactly and and it's the you know the the group think power people come up with some wonderful solutions that work in in their situation um and uh you know, why not, why not borrow those? So the, you know, those are, you can look and um, there's a lot of virtual communities out there for dementia caregivers um, of various kinds and just tossing a question out there. Sometimes will will bring in a a lot of good responses. You know, local support groups, a lot of people find really helpful. You know, the downside is it can be hard to get to them, but the Plus side is they're really, really wonderful resources. Um, they, they bring in experts who can help you uh, learn about different ways to manage things. You meet other people face-to-face, and I know a lot of people have good bonding um, experiences through that. Um, you, know, you can seek the, the, the a consultation from an expert um, who can come in and look at your specific situation um, uh, some geriatric care managers will do that. Um,
0: yeah, or there, and some of them are trained actually in uh TIPA snows methods or, yes. you know, some other sort of, there are a couple methods of like more person centered and enlightened, we could say dementia care. So there are people who've been trained in some of those methods who are sometimes able to, that you can consult whether they can come to your house and help you troubleshoot
1: things. All right. So there, I mean, the good news is there are way more resources out there than there were 10 years ago when you and I first were working together or, 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 20 years ago. Um, so they're, they're out there and it's great if you can try to harness that. Now, you, you know, if you go through a lot of things, there are some behaviors that are really, really difficult, or it's gone on for so long or something. It's just, it's,
0: or it's like too dangerous or you're feeling unsafe, right? Cause some people, uh, unfortunately with dementia or, are- such as um, some people with Alzheimer's and other dementias, you know, sometimes become violent, actually. Right. And hit their those caregivers. Are the,
1: those are the two big things that I tell people, really just, like, don't beat around the bush. Go go right to getting some medical help. I mean, one is feeling unsafe yeah. because of, of violence. Often you'll see you know, the caregiver is a, a, you know, a petite woman and her husband's like a big guy and, and, you know, he lashes out and she's like, well, he's my husband. I can't, I don't want to, you know, but she's in danger yeah um, or, or other people maybe. But, and the other reason is um, if your sleep is impacted, because I think that's super, super important. And if the person with dementia is having sleep problems, that's affecting the entire household. Um, there are things that, that can be done to address that. And that's something that, people shouldn't have to suffer through without seeking medical help. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, uh, we actually have an, I wrote an article on better health while aging about sleep and dementia. So I'll post a link to that in the show notes. Um, there are some, you know, methods, you know, some of it is just like addressing people's overall needs, uh, you know, making sure they get enough activity and stimulation and daylight that -hmm. can help them sleep better. But, but yeah, it's often, it can be really hard to troubleshoot that on your own as a caregiver in part, because when you're tired, you just don't have, the energy and patience to, uh, you know, to go through everything that you could. So that's, I agree, that's another important moment to seek out extra help. So to, I guess, a recap, the general framework for thinking through and better managing a difficult dementia behavior would be, one, to reassure the person, help them feel understood and create some kind of positive emotional connection. Two, start reviewing the potential causes, thinking about the, um you know, whether there's a pattern in terms of time and location and whether there are any unmet physical needs or whether there might be some kind of uh, pain, frustration, over, understimulation or uh, anxiety or unsafe feeling situation for the person. Three, removing any triggers that you can, especially if it seems like the behavior is being triggered by some kind of activity or visual or misperception. Four, redirect the person's behavior or attention to, to something else. And again, that works better if you first have helped them feel understood and connected to you. Five, restore yourself. Take a moment right then after the crisis is over for some deep breaths. And then just generally take care of yourself as a, as a caregiver. I think that's often also, mm. you know, people tend to lose sight of that, but so, so important. Six, review what happened and try to learn from it for the future. And then seven, reach out for more help from other people taking care of somebody with dementia or from the doctors, especially if the situation is very difficult, if there's aggression, sleep difficulties, or if maybe you do need to consider uh, medications. Does that about summarize it?
1: That summarizes Yeah. It. Yeah,
0: well, I wish more people knew that because I think a lot of people go through this experience of helping someone With dementia for quite a long time without learning enough about these skills and this framework and it just leads to a lot more uh frustration and difficulty than i think it has to and also leads to people being medicated i think sooner than uh than they should be yeah which uh which is a shame okay well thank you so much paula for 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 sharing um this with us. So, you know, you've become pretty well known as a dementia caregiving expert. I mean, where are you seeing people getting the information and support that uh that we know they need and would benefit from?
1: Uh well, you know, sadly and, and surprisingly, I think they 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 very often don't. Um and I I say surprisingly because, you know, I I deal with this every day and I tend to think, "Oh, everybody knows this." But as we said earlier, if you don't know it, if you haven't been through it before, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you you might start with the doctor, but you you just really have to go through almost a a, a conscious process of of learning about it. Um, I think a lot of um, online resources are, are providing help to a a lot of people. Um, And, uh, and that's certainly um, a big change there. There are um, a lot more um, books and other resources out there, but it, it, it takes a while to kind of navigate and figure out the 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 grooves of what are the the starting places. Yeah,
0: um, yeah. so what are some of um your favorite resources to recommend to families who are either just getting started with this or maybe have been doing this for a bit but have realized that, you know, actually, maybe I need to learn more about how to manage this or get more support. Any favorite resources that you want to share?
1: Well, I always tell people to start with their local aging services group Mm -hmm. and they, they really vary in, in the the kind of quality and depth around the country of what they have to offer you. But there's typically way more out there than people expect. Um, so just starting with your local area agency on aging, Mm -hmm. um, or also your local Alzheimer's uh, organization. Yeah. And it's not always the Alzheimer's association. I don't think people realize they're, they go by different names in, in different parts of the country. So there's not an Alzheimer's association um, or the big Alzheimer's group in like New York city is called caring kind now, or there's um, Alzheimer's greater LA is the one in, in Los Angeles. And it has to do with um, I think splits in in the big Alzheimer's groups over time. But the point is that there are a lot of really good groups and they do go by different names and you want to kind of, Find out what is that resource in your community, um, and that's a great starting place.
0: Yeah, I think the Maine Alzheimer's Association website also has like a 24/7 hotline number, and um, I would think that they could probably help people find their local group among other things. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any other um, favorite resources?
1: yeah um, you know online again, there's there's more than others. but just for for coping advice and finding out about specific kinds of situations, you know, two that I really like are um the the Alzheimer's Reading Room is one of the biggest. It's like was the first huge grassroots group. um, um I think the the founder Bob deMarco, um, who is one of the experts in my book. Um, because he really talks about this Alzheimer's world entering their reality. He was a hands-on caregiver for a long time and, and started what he calls, like, you know, the world's biggest support group, uh-huh. <laughs> which he started just for himself, but has become a really big source of all kinds of information. It's a, it can be a little complicated to navigate, but um, it's a very homespun group with a lot of avid users and and help out there if you're running into a a snag um there's also a more recent group um, called all's authors like alzheimer's all's authors which was started by four women who had written memoirs mostly i think about alzheimer's but in like the last three years they've just turned this into this big uh website where you can just find all kinds of books about alzheimer's care kind of a clearinghouse organization for that and that can be a um, an, an easy way. I mean, you could go to Amazon and find those books, but they have people writing about the book experiences and you can kind of sample some of them. And that's kind of a, a real innovative way to find other people who are kindred spirits, who are, you know, specifically a spousal caregiver or dealing with a grandmother or dealing with a certain kind of, of dementia. So uh, those are things that people don't often um, know about otherwise that I, I like to refer them to. mm mm-hmm. Great.
0: Uh, well, Paula, this has been, um, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for, for sharing this with us. Any last tips or suggestions for, for the,
1: the audience? Well, you know, there's a big expression in dementia care called be kinder than you feel, right? To be uh-huh. kinder to the person than what your emotions are feeling. But I would also just say, be kinder to yourself, <laughs> Um, because we just always put the person with dementia first, right? It's crisis management, they need help, um, but this is a long crisis and it's really important that you preserve you know, your sleep, your friendships, you know, your outlets for stress and venting and, and that it's okay to want those things as well as need them. I just don't think that can be said enough.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think also sort of be kinder to yourself than you feel because I think often people are sort of, focus on all the things that they feel they aren't doing well enough and they lose sight of, of everything that they, they are doing. And just the fact that they're there working at it and trying, even if they're not doing it entirely quote unquote, right, maybe still reasoning with their, their older parent or getting mad. Sometimes there's, you're still trying and I, and I just see people not giving themselves enough credit. So, so I like that phrase, be kinder than you feel both to, uh, to your, your, your loved ones with uh, Alzheimer's or another dementia and especially to yourself. So great, great closing words. Thank you, Paula. You're welcome. And then one last thing I'll mention, which I should have mentioned a little earlier, if you are living with someone who has dementia or Alzheimer's or if you would like some help putting Paula's suggestions into action, she has created a cheat sheet summarizing the why this, try this approach and the seven key steps. And so we'll post that in the show notes. And then we will also post a link to the fuller Better Health While Aging article covering those steps. But if you need a little something summarizing those key steps, something to help you out with the day-to-day challenges, be sure to visit the show notes and you can get the cheat sheet right from there. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.